0: Investors Chronicle. Welcome back to the Companies and Market Show. Joining me in the studio, we've got Mark Robinson, Alex Newman, and Dave Baxter, and overline Julian Hoffman as well. All hosted as normal by Dan Jones. Dan, hello. How are you? I'm well, thanks, John. How are you? Very well, thank you. What is uh, what is coming up on today's show?
1: Yeah, we've got a busy show today, a lot to pack in. We're going to start by talking about uh, retailers and various retail-facing companies, some of the uh, high-profile problems there from the likes of Cineworld, World, and, and beyond. We're going to then pivot seamlessly to uh, a little bit on oil services, uh, a couple of companies reporting this week, and uh, commodities in general, um, a couple of interesting mining. Uh, details to pick out that we will be talking about, and then we'll be looking at our cover feature as ever. Uh, Jennifer Johnson is going to be here to talk about blockbuster drugs, and finally, we will be discussing with Dave, our funds editor, our Hargreaves exclusive story this week on the fee deals that they have been offering certain customers
0: or on one customer in particular. Great, yes, busy show. Uh, and before we get there, a little roundup of the week of news. It's midday on, the, on Thursday, as we speak, Thursday, the 25th of August. And that means traders are poised for the beginning of the Jackson Hole Wyoming conference, uh, which will be underway for you now, listener. Uh, the conference sees central bankers congregating, including US Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell, uh, to discuss the challenges ahead for the global economy. Companies news, uh, London-listed Cineworld, the second largest cinema business in the world, confirmed it is looking at bankruptcy options. Shares have lost 98% of their value over the last five years. Uh, However, they have reiterated that it expects operations to continue after any bankruptcy filing. Chris Akers with the write-up for the IC online and in the magazine. Vodafone has agreed to sell its Hungary business for a £1.5 billion fee. The cash will go into helping finance infrastructure and 5G upgrades. In February, Vodafone rejected a multi million pound bid for its Italian business, so eyes are peeled for further movement there in the future, in the near future. Car and bike retailer Halford saw its share price tumble 10% following a cut in the target share price by broker Panmure Gordon. The company warned at its half-year results that inflationary pressures would hit sales and the broker has said in a new note the damage would be significant. French multinational company Schneider Electric said it is thinking of a full takeover of UK software company Aviva. That's Aviva with an E in the middle, not to be confused with the insurer Aviva. Uh, Schneider already owns 60% of the business. A couple of slightly longer reads to highlight this week. Mitchell Labiak looks at how Fraser's has defied the inflationary environment To see shares surge. Uh, The Sports Direct owner swung from a £78 million pre tax loss last year to a £297 million profit in its most recent trading update. It's also added a string of acquisitions to its stable, including an investment in Hugo Boss. That read is available online and in the Mac now. And in an exclusive, Dave Baxter writes about a secret fee deal an investor got to stay with Hargreaves Lansdowne. And we are talking about that at the end of the podcast. So stay tuned for that. That's all from me. Over to you, Dan.
1: Thank you, John. Yes, we are going to start in the world of retailers. Uh, Cineworld is a very high profile company and a high profile uh, uh, near collapse there. And um, but there's some wider issues here as well. Obviously, it's a much tougher environment in general uh, for retailers coming into the second half, interest rates are rising, You know, the, the cost of debt is going up, refinancing suddenly becomes a lot more tricky, perhaps, if you're looking at this now than you were uh, 12 months ago. There's no perhaps about it, really. And and there's a few strands to pick out here. Alex Newman, our Ideas Editor, is with us. Alex... Uh, Cineworld is the most obvious example there, but we're, we're talking about a couple of things uh, in print this week. Carnival being another one, uh, retail facing, of course. And we've had AO World as well recently, you know, with a bit of a, a, a fundraise, you know, got to get that all important working capital up to speed. So there are some, you know, canaries in the coal mine again here,
2: really. Yeah, we, I, I suppose we should point out that each situation there is is uh, different. And, sure. uh, and AO World, I'd say, despite their struggles, Of of the names you mentioned there, I probably I I would worry least about though. You know that company, given given the fundraising looks looks to be sort of done deal. The the strands you 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 mentioned there, which we can sort of tie together in the current environment, is is basically that you know there's lots of companies are warning that sales are, are going to be slowing, going to face all these macroeconomic headwinds, and if companies have been reliant in the last few years on on debt to fund their growth it's not that easy to you know when we we've, we've got this very very abrupt change in circumstances over the last years um necessarily to refinance that debt as it comes due so i mean Cineworld is an extreme example of this because they had they had so many liabilities and you know they've really been kicking the can down for some time now and, and 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 so that's why we've seen in the last week with the talk of a potential bankruptcy proceedings and and you know almost Skipping past a, a full restructuring of the business, um, it's, that that's how dire the situation is there. Carnival, which you mentioned, I think is re- really interesting example um, here. Again, I mean, they're a supremely leveraged company, and investors have been willing to back them. Um, you know, sensing this long term growth in the in the uh, cruise business, um, uh, but they face a really interesting sort of juncture where whereby debt markets. Are possibly closing their doors to them because the you know interest rates are are rising considerably, um, and the the risk that borrowers are willing to take on is um, uh, that the the risk profile there has, has changed quite dramatically. What they'd be asking for is a real pound of flesh, a sort of double digit bond, uh, sort of bond coupons, etc. So if that happens, then we have this really worrying situation for equity investors in that. It, you know, if, if they're going to have to go cap in hand um, and ask for uh, an equity injection, at what price that is done is kind of anyone's guess when when the the outlook is, you know, is so choppy for, you know, share price returns. So, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a sort of blanket overview of the things that are happening there. But it's certainly a, a trend to watch in the second half of the year. For companies which are quite highly leveraged, running into a little bit of sales difficulty, uh, which might not feel, what uh, might not find, debt markets quite as supportive as they as they have been. That you know that that dynamic can be really really brutal for for share prices, even if it doesn't mean that we're going to see the the kind of senior World style collapses. On um, mass,
1: AO World, as you say, is perhaps slightly different. But that was particularly interesting from the point of view of an investor. It seemed to me because that was almost one of those where it's hard to to pick up ahead of time. Other than you know looking at you know there there are some uh, liabilities there, and obviously working capital is really important for retailers. But this was a case of what well, it seemed. I think they said this wasn't prompted by this, but you know there were stories about their credit insurance for suppliers being withdrawn, or at least you know the um, the collateral raised there, which meant the suppliers would then need to demand payment up front, which obviously then creates a bit of a cash crunch. And, you know, it's quite hard until those stories come out to, to anticipate yeah. these kind of things ahead of time.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Mark, Mark wrote the results up a week ago. He said, you know, the operationally it's kind of f- fell under the heading of not quite as dismal as expected. But yeah, we have these, these kind of liquidity supply chain issues, which, um, yeah, the, the kind of the insurance and you know, capital market infrastructure, which often underpins quite complicated middleman-style businesses, you know, they're they're showing some serious signs of stress, and and yeah, that's that's hard to predict or or spot from a you know from the outside. So um, yeah. yeah, I guess
3: what you're saying as well, Alex, is that uh, it increases the imperative to look at the the debt breakdown as well if you're an investor. Yeah, because you know this might all blow over in two or three years. Who
2: can say? But uh, you know, as ever.
3: Take uh, heed of the notes.
2: Yeah, take heed of the notes, and, and also, you know, I think the, the companies which have been um, up front about about the t- well, I mean, the timing of 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 when when debts are likely to mature is is kind of fully disclosed. But something you know, investors should really be paying attention to is you know what have companies said about how they've hedged their energy costs? What are you know what their kind of soundings been on uh, from their their bankers? If that information is you know, is being disclosed because you know, everyone's, everyone's staring down a quite difficult year ahead. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, if 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 a, if a refinancing is coming in January or March or April or whatever it is, and the market's now saying, yeah, interest rates by then are going to be 4%, then that's going to add a, a huge dollop to interest payments come this time next year.
3: And uh, on a general uh, retail point as well, so far what we've seen during the results season is that companies have been relatively successful in passing costs through but obviously that must reach a point where that grinds up against the uh, household budgets yeah. and i guess that's you know we'll probably have to wait until q1 trading updates or rather three Q trading updates uh to see what's happening on that score but uh, as i say you know it can't go on forever passing through costs to uh,
4: well, you're already seeing a, bio, a sort of consumer strike in the U.S. in certain areas. I, I did a piece on this um, for the news section this week, in this week's MAG. Um, for example, like home improvement, for example, uh, people are just putting off doing anything to their houses because they're having to pay more in their mortgages, uh, which probably spares the houses from a, a kind of terrible makeover, but uh, isn't very good for the likes of uh, you know Home Depot or Lowe's or something. It uh, you know, depends very much on your customer base. I think that's definitely what they're seeing at the moment.
1: Yeah. I think they're, yeah, there they seems to be resilience there, even in some of those companies. But yeah, there is yeah the question of how long that can that can last as well.
3: I mean, a lot, a lot of hangovers as well, obviously from uh, the pandemic. With three of the companies we mentioned, there had differing outcomes as a result. Uh, AO World was quite positive while that was going on, but obviously um, Cineworld, World um, it, it's a definite hangover. And I think Chris. Uh, in his article, or certainly when I was speaking to I him, mean, pointed out the fact that there have been relatively few blockbusters this year, which is mm. a contributory factor as well. I mean, you know, from the macro through to the micro. There ought
4: to be a business
3: there, though, isn't there? I mean,
4: if someone picks that up, on the cheap now that if they go down i mean presumably free of debt that business could be quite successful i mean nobody has ever wooed anyone by saying oh, would you like to come around and
1: watch netflix <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm quite uh yeah uh presume there are not gonna be too many people listening who are still holders of Cineworld because it has been you know uh in a dire straits for a long time but i'm you know yeah i, I kind of agree with that you know they have, there has been a problem this year with blockbusters and you know, just a lack of things coming through. You've had kind of the tent pole things like Top Gun, but but really this summer there were kind of weeks on end where there was nothing new coming out which is very rare and even you know I could spend a long time talking about the lack of non-blockbuster films now but blockbusters are where the, is where the money is made and if you look at like next year's schedule well, if you look at next year's schedule I think trade publications have I've seen some suggestion that there isn't much coming out next year either but it seems to me that almost
2: any franchise you can think of has a sequel coming out next year or more than one so I think the main the main draw of cinemas this winter is going to be if, if they are heated
1: you
3: know, <laughs> yeah well that's, I mean, that's, the, that's the
2: place
1: to just gather en masse with uh, your fellow Cinema I mean, it's much the same in the past few weeks. The air con in the cinema has been yeah. a bonus in some ways. So yeah, maybe there's you're a feel-good kind of, kind of feel good comedies are going to be the thing this year, aren't they? <laughs> well, yeah, that's another thing that there's very few uh, comedies made nowadays because everyone funnels the money into uh, TV. Horror movies as well increase during
3: um, times of economic uh, stress. God knows why, but that's uh, it's been it's been proven in the past.
1: Yeah. We shall see, but yeah, uh, the the business model itself is perhaps not uh, uh, entirely broken, but certainly some some difficulties there. Let's uh, let's move on because um, we do have a lot to discuss this week. Oil services. Very different uh, in one way, but in another, looking at a couple of companies reported in the past few days, past couple of weeks, Wood Group and Hunting. Two different stories there. Hunting reports today or has reported today as we are recording, and results have been very well received. Wood Group a little bit of the opposite. You know, it's still working through these legacy issues. It does have itself, you know, a decent amount of debt as well. It's just an interesting contrast there, I suppose. You know, uh, I was speaking to Alex Hamer, our commodities guru, and you know, making the point that hunting is a lot more nimble, doesn't have, you know, the legacy project exposure and, and can kind of tap into the, the oil boom more easily. But it's interesting that, you know, it doesn't translate for, for Wood Group into great results.
3: Yeah, I think the, the point with hunting, because I've, I've looked at the company for a number of years now, and uh, for years it was very well run, had sort of great IP, but it's, Largely exposed to the unconventional oil and gas market, particularly in North America as well. That's starting to come back a bit now. The uh, Biden administration the, uh, have been have been fairly negative on oil and gas since uh, he, he came to power. But I think uh, because of the ongoing energy crisis, um, perhaps federal government sort of attitudes are changing. And, and a point with hunting as well, It's a, it falls under the General Oil Services Stroke Equipment uh, heading, but it's, it's a specialist or has a high proportion linked in um, directional drilling, uh, fracking technologies, and... Um, that's great when, when, wells, when you've got a high well count and that's increasing. But unlike some other oil services companies, when the market is down, it doesn't have the, the maintenance uh, work or high-level maintenance work it can fall back on. And so that's why it's really suffered uh, whenever the, um, the oil price is slumped and production is slumped. So it's, it's, a, little, it's a little bit unconventional itself in that regard
1: yeah and what group uh, thoughts you know it's been struggling again with a lot of these these big projects that it's been trying to wean itself off of yeah yeah i th- i think that's the case i mean what
3: alex points to uh, and you mentioned that it's the legacy issues with the company itself and I think the general view of the market is that it's a holding position at the moment. It's only one thing that they get through um, when they get through these that uh, you'll be able to sort of have a um, a reasoned valuation.
1: You know, we, we we can spend a bit of time on oil services, but the commodities, you know, complex in general is pretty broad. And, and another interesting aspect of that, you know, in, in turning to the miners is a Anglo-Pacific group, uh, which is not really a company that's particularly high profile. but it is one we sort of picked up on in recent weeks as a potential beneficiary of, uh, in some ways, you know, a, a more stringent uh, regulatory environment for some of the bigger companies. Obviously, there's a lot of talk right now about whether you be oil or mining or whatever about, uh, you know, windfall profits and things like that. But uh, Alex, do you want to talk a bit about the, the potential opportunity
2: there? Very briefly, Ango Pacific um, is completely company we followed for uh, many years, but they are a royalty and streaming company. Which derives most of its income still from a, a concession over a, a coal mine in in Queensland, which is the aforementioned beneficiary uh, benefiting from a regulatory change point you just mentioned there, Dan. But um, I, I mean, w- one of the nice aspects of of Anglo Pacific's business model is that they don't have to get into the nitty gritty and operational pain and uh, capital cycles that most miners do, which you know there are often many downsides to when prices aren't uh, aren't so. Strong, but as when prices are really strong, as we've seen recently, there can also be problems because the political pressure and conversation around windfall taxes rises, and that has that has been affected in in Queensland, where the the government there has taken a, a kind of a kind of a, a super windfall cut on ex, you know explosive uh, thermal and coking coal prices. The the structure of anglo Pacific's uh, royalty stream over the the Queensland mine is such that they they take whatever the government is going to take which basically has is is leading to just ballooning profits uh from that stream smartly uh they you know they've they've said for a while now that they you know they they know this is going to run out in sort of 2026 or so that they are reinvesting lots of those profits into you know future facing um uh metal streams and, and commodity projects so um you know they've they've announced a a number of deals this um, Year, including um and, and you know they're focusing on, on nickel, cobalt, sort of, um, sort of um, minerals and, and metals which are going to be in heavy use in in the energy transition and electric vehicles. There's a, um,
3: there's a copper mine
2: in Chile as well. I yeah, think, and, and, and and copper copper as well. So they, you know, this is quite. It, it's a you know there there are obviously controversies about any any company that's deriving any profit from. Um, coal and lots of investors, that's just a complete non-starter. But, you know, if we're going to get to a, a cleaner energy and material system, then one way to do that is to recycle, recycle profits that are being generated from uh, from our kind of legacy fossil fuel system into the new one. And as kind of pretty much precisely what Anglo-Pacific is doing. So yeah, and they, they had results out today. Uh, very, very strong they're just throwing off so much cash from this Queensland royalty that they're re- able to reduce net debt, and they're looking to plow that back into new acquisitions as well as as well as supporting a a, a, a dividend of, of one one and three quarters of a pence per share, uh, which is you know very very easily covered at the moment.
3: Yeah, the copper copper in itself is a bit of a no brainer at the moment, as you say, it's integral to the um, sort of the, the ambitions towards net zero and the expansion of electric motoring as well. Yeah. And plus, you know, grades uh, around the globe have, have been falling and they've been falling for a decade or so now, uh, which has increased the sort of um, the sort of capital costs involved in these mines too. And it's just going to be supportive of the price for... Uh, Decades to come, one imagines. I mean, you've got the
1: interesting dynamic, haven't you? In the short term, you know, some of the economic issues. I mean, you know, some of the price of uh, a lot of these um, uh, resources is coming down. But yeah, you've got that structural, uh, you know, impulse there. Although that that said, it was quite interesting this week uh, looking at uh, you know, obviously the EV electric car, uh, you know, production. Cobalt, for example, is another one where the prices come down on the short term and supply is obviously increasing because people see those opportunities. But it's interesting, the number of batteries in electric cars that use cobalt have actually started to fall quite a lot as well, possibly because... Supply has been constrained for a while. So, you know, on the demand side, manufacturers are finding ways around. And, and it may be, you know, the, the basics of, you know, there's going to be more demand for all the, these things, I, I, I'm sure, are correct. But it may be that the exact share of these things, you know, changes a bit and it's not in a one-to-one, you know, mining X metal for for years in the future means
2: it's going to be a winner. But, yeah, but totally. yeah. yeah I mean, the, the cobalt is one that the battery manufacturers definitely be keen to um, diversify or or it's kind of hedge against, given that you know so much supply comes from the Congo, yeah. So and it's just it's it's not a, it's not a country that you would you know if you're reliant on those supply chains that you're going to feel hugely confident about, given its its history and the enormous stresses on that on that country. So yeah, I mean the the Anglo Pacific uh, cobalt stream that they've invested in is in um uh or a development stream is in is in Brazil. Um, so you know that's a an alternative supply which is probably good news for them
1: our cover feature this week is on blockbuster drugs and what the next blockbuster drugs might be how one can spot a blockbuster drug and so on and so forth difficult questions to answer but our correspondent jennifer johnson has attempted to do that jen how are you
5: i'm good thanks it's good to be here
1: yeah, I should say also this is a pre-recorded segment so we are coming to you from one week in the past because uh, Jens about to go on holiday. Before you go, you're on the podcast for the first time. Um why don't we talk a bit about sort of the thinking behind the feature, you know what what kind of things you were trying to explore?
5: So blockbuster drugs uh, are extremely important to um, you know the revenues of most big pharmaceutical companies. Um, you know they make up anywhere between sort of forty five percent and eighty three percent of um, sales among the five biggest pharma companies. Uh, so when those drugs go off patent, meaning that generic manufacturers are allowed to make copies of the drug, um, those original manufacturers lose revenue. And with so many companies being so dependent on blockbuster drugs, uh, it's very important to take a look at the pipelines and the drugs that these companies are developing, um, because you can see quite a significant um, drop off in profits once a drug has sort of fallen off what's known as the patent cliff.
1: Yeah, we should say the blockbuster drugs, for the purposes that we and I think most people define them are drugs with you know a billion dollars of sales a year. So you know the big the big money spinners for these companies and as we know pharma you know invests huge amounts in r and d to try and ensure they have a a, a decent stream of a uh, of uh, new products coming online easier said than done you know there are a lot of pitfalls out there i suppose you know when you think of you know uh, medicines and vaccines now you know just saying that word obviously makes everyone think of uh, uh, the pandemic and coronavirus vaccinations mrna is what i'm effectively leading on to here obviously that was a big breakthrough a lot was invested in a short space of time, understandably, which helped achieve those breakthroughs. But the mRNA technology is one that some pharma companies have been you know, looking at for some time. Some of them have got big hopes in other areas, too, in terms of utilising that elsewhere.
5: Yeah. So I guess um, with mRNA, the best place to start is by kind of understanding what it's designed to do. And this is going to be quite a bit of a scientific simplification, but essentially um, mRNA orders the body cells to make specific proteins, which can then be mobilised in a number of different ways. So with uh, the COVID vaccines, your body is instructed to mobilise against the coronavirus. But as you said, researchers have been working um, with mRNA for decades, and until uh, the coronavirus vaccines came around, cancer was going to be um always thought to be uh, its potential kind of largest application um so there you know it's the idea is that If you're given an mRNA cancer vaccine, your body is directed to attack your tumour cells. Uh, And so there are quite a lot of companies working on mRNA cancer vaccines for all different types of cancers. Um, You've also got companies now working on other respiratory viruses like the flu. AstraZeneca is even working on a cardiovascular drug um, that would essentially promote the regeneration of blood vessels around the heart, which have been damaged by high blood pressure or a heart attack. So it's an mRNA treatment um, for heart failure, essentially. So the COVID vaccines are probably the first time that members of the general public heard of mRNA, but its, yeah, it's potential applications are, are huge. And it's definitely uh, a technology that has blockbuster, i.e. billion dollar potential and, and much more.
1: You know, we, we talk about cancer there and obviously that would be you know a kind of holy grail of drug development and but it also speaks to the difficulties in 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 this whole process you know you've got you know find a, a big target market if you want to be to use that term maybe I'm being a bit too crude there but you know you've got a big opportunity but also you know whatever disease it is you've got to get through trials you've got to you've also got to make sure it's costed it's priced in the, in the right kind of way you know how how big a impediment can that be in some cases you know because these drugs Cost a lot to develop and in some cases costs much more to buy.
5: Yeah, definitely. And I think this is an important topic to discuss now, um, especially in relation to cancer, because cancer isn't really one disease. It's a number of different diseases. The rarer that a cancer is, the more difficult um, historically it's been to, to find an effective treatment. And obviously the smaller a given market is. The more expensive these drugs are going to be for patients and for healthcare systems. I guess the holy grail of cancer drugs was once thought to be a cure for cancer, but now it's more effective precision treatments that are dealing with you know the genetic factors that go into um, kind of individual cancers. But obviously, as these treatments become highly personalised, they will be more expensive, and so. It's one of those things, you know, just because a drug is highly expensive doesn't mean it won't become a blockbuster. But the willingness of insurers and patients and healthcare systems to pay for these drugs very much depends upon their efficacy. Healthcare systems as a whole are willing to pick up the tab on a highly, highly effective drug uh, if. It's going to make a significant difference, i.e., save a patient's life or significantly prolong their, their life or significantly improve their quality of life. So it's not the case that really expensive drugs can't go on to be successful, but if they're coming in at a high price point, uh, they sort of have to prove that they're valuable.
1: I suppose that leads on to another thing you talk about in the piece, which is, you know, orphan drugs, these, the orphan drug market, these, you know, specific areas with relatively rare conditions. But nonetheless, there's some potential there now as well for for some, for some interesting development.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you look at it from um, a pharma company's perspective, the kind of most popular, highest selling drugs of um, last year, I believe, one of them is a drug that treats a number of different autoimmune diseases called Humira. So um, it treats arthritis and psoriasis. So that has a huge potential market or a huge market that it does serve. The other um, kind of biggest blockbuster in recent years is a blood thinner, which is something, again, that has multiple applications in multiple um, diseases. But if you're going to try and break into a market that's already well served by effective treatments, uh, that's going to be very expensive and quite a different, difficult scientific hurdle to cross. So increasingly, uh, pharma companies are interested in what are known as orphan diseases, and that is a, kind of a, a little bit, I guess, of a cross term for highly rare diseases. And there are some statistics um, from Evaluate Pharma, which is a, a data provider for the sector, that say by 2026, orphan drug sales will account for one fifth of all prescription sales and that the top 10 orphan drugs will be worth between 3 billion and 13 billion dollars. So these are drugs that are going to be coming in at a high a very high price point because they're going to be serving these very small um markets of, of patients with rare diseases.
1: And shifting away from, you know, the orphan market to to a potentially huge market another area you talk about is uh Alzheimer's and the, the quest and the diff- to find something, you know, useful there and the difficulties uh, that the companies have had in trying to develop products for that.
5: Yeah, so that has been Alzheimer's and the development of Alzheimer's drugs has been particularly difficult for a US um, company called Biogen, uh, who last year um, received accelerated approval from the FDA for a drug, which is now uh, kind of widely considered to be a flop for a number of different reasons. But it kind of boils down to the fact that the drug while it did what it said it would do, uh, which is reduce plaques of something called beta amyloid in the brain, it didn't necessarily improve the lives of Alzheimer's patients. And all kind of Alzheimer's treatments, not all, but most of them that are under development at the moment, and there are quite a few, uh, including another by Biogen, one that's going to be releasing phase three trial results in the next year. uh, These drugs all work to reduce these these plaques in the brain, but there's not scientific consensus over whether that is necessarily the, the root cause of Alzheimer's. So these are quite high risk potentially drugs. And we won't really know until um, more of this class of drug have released um, phase three trial results. So that's the last uh, trial stage before a drug would go into approval. But yeah, it's potentially if one of these drugs... Does prove that it works and that um, reducing these these plaques in the brain also improves Alzheimer's symptoms. That is a massive, massive market. Um, so whoever kind of cracks this first um, is is going to be in with a with a real blockbuster drug.
1: Yeah, and that you know brings us on to the US in general, which obviously you know goes without saying is you know the big pharma market. The big pharma companies are over there to market. Obviously, you know well, uh, but in the last you know, couple of weeks, we have had some developments there, which we tux- touched on in last week's issue uh, around Medicare and drug pricing and, and the impact that the the quote-unquote Inflation Reduction Act could have on some existing drug sales. Can we talk a bit about, about that?
5: Yeah. So in the Inflation Reduction Act is um, a measure that would allow Medicare, which is the government's um, health insurance policy that covers mostly covers people over sixty five, and would allow representatives of Medicare to negotiate prices initially of ten drugs, um, for or on behalf of of Medicare users, um, and this has caused some controversy in the pharmaceutical industry uh, because it does have the potential to um, kind of take the wind out of some blockbuster sales per se. Um, but there are also arguments that say it won't actually be that big of a deal. You know, 63 million people in the US are on Medicare. Um, as of 2020, you've had something like 177 uh, who use private health insurance. So while the Medicare market is significant, I think it's probably just under one fifth of the US population uses it. It's not um, necessarily the be all and end all, but the drugs that could potentially um be impacted by um, eventual price controls, uh, which would come into effect in in 2026. I think negotiations start um, are blockbusters, which are used by a lot of people, um, especially older people. So. Uh, It kind of remains to be seen what impact this will have on uh, farmer revenues in the long term. In the short term, it's kind of removed this element of headline risk because I think the sector was anticipating um, price control regulations of some variety. But now that those have become clear, uh, I think markets are kind of breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief um, and trying to get their heads around what this actually means. Um, and we won't really know we don't even know yet which are which are the ten drugs um there's kind of a lot of speculation around what which ones are likely to be uh negotiated upon but uh yeah, it's a sort of watch this space thing because there are potentially a couple of companies that could um that could lose out on um on serious revenue
1: yeah, we do have as i say details of that in in last week's issue um but yeah, as you mentioned you know in twenty twenty six it is a while away but Nonetheless, market's always forward looking and got to be cognizant of these these issues and these risks. But yes, the Blockbuster Drugs feature is the cover story in this week's issue. Look out for that on the shelves this week as usual. For our final section this week, we are talking to Dave Baxter, our funds editor, about platform fees and Hargreaves Lansdowne in particular, a story out uh, on the IC website and in print a couple of days ago. Dave, do you want to talk us through uh, the basics of the the piece, first of all, and then we can get into the, the detail?
6: Yeah, absolutely. We were speaking to a um, Hargreaves customer or perhaps soon to be former customer who after about 10 years with the platform decided to leave. And interestingly, what happened is um, Hargreaves then turned to him and offered him a kind of discounted version of the fees, you know, the standard fee structure that he, he was paying on the funds that he held. Yeah. And that's kind of, that is something that they, they have done in the past, but it's really not well publicized at all it's not a thing that many people are aware of and it's just interesting to see particularly at this time given you know for me two factors stand out so one is of course you know cost of living people are starting to feel that and may now be considering just how much of a difference uh, they can get in costs if they move a relatively large pot from someone like Hargreaves to someone like Interactive Investor and which is what this customer is doing And then on the other hand, just more generally, I imagine you're, you might be seeing the effects of rivals like Interactive and AJ Bell and others, you know, they're, they're becoming more prominent. And now people are perhaps finally starting to question whether they, you know, whether they still want to be paying those kind of higher fees to be with Hargreaves as they many have done for a long time.
1: Yeah. Uh, the other interesting thing I took from it as well was, you know, this customer has a, a pot, you know, a few hundred thousand, yeah. but um, sad to say almost that's not, you know, the, the very biggest kind of pot. So it's not the absolute, you know, um, premium kind of customer. It's certainly, you know, a very valuable customer, I'm sure, on a lot of assets there. Yeah. But uh, it's almost like, it, you know, there is the question of, you know, if they're offering that kind of customer a deal, and I'm sure it's only in isolated cases. It's not every time that, that, you know, what does that say about you know, the strategy in general. But I mean, that's that's speculation, isn't it? In terms of, you know, what might be going on there.
6: I, I would agree that. I mean, my my initial assumption when we first kind of spoke to this individual was, um, you know, we originally didn't know how much of a, a pot they had. And my assumption was, you know, we're perhaps talking a million plus. You, you'd think for, for Hargreaves to kind of bend on their fees and to make that compromise, it would have to be a fairly chunky amount. Um, I mean, you can argue that, you know it's expensive to acquire customers and any money retained is still a good thing but yeah perhaps like you say they're um yeah increasingly trying to kind of hold on to what they can and um maybe those kind of relatively smaller parts are now more important and more worth them kind of focusing on mm.
4: well yeah. I mean, to me it was a bit like desperation i mean you saw that in the results that they're they're experiencing a lot of pricing pressure so, I mean, it, if they're having to go this far down the ladder in order to, to retain people, then there must be a serious issue. But, I mean, again, that's a near speculative. But, you, I mean, you can see that the margins are under pressure. Yeah.
1: I mean, the margins, yeah, obviously were very high for a long time and they have come down and still pretty high. But, uh, mm. I, I, you know, at the same time, you know, in the first half... I was just looking the other day as well, you know, the um, obviously client, client acquisition is tough in this market in general, but in terms of client retention, they you know, they matched uh, the first half of 2021, which yeah. given, uh, you know, everything going on there and, you know, a bit more boom, well, certainly a lot more boom time feel to it, that, that was pretty creditable. So there isn't really a sign, the margins are definitely under pressure, but there isn't really a sign on the retention side that uh, there's been uh, an issue so far. So, yeah, it, it is a question of how far this goes and, and what it
6: means. And that's an extremely high figure, isn't it? I looked at it the other day and it's something like, was it 92%? Or mm. is it's, mm. you know, yeah. breathtakingly high. So you you think, um, yeah, perhaps they are doing more of this kind of deal activity and perhaps that is kind of helping them to hold on yeah. to that retention rate for the time being.
1: Uh,
3: uh, there's a possibility as well that uh, uh, retail investors may be following the institutions and uh bumping up their cash accounts uh, a little bit, their liquidity. And I I knew Hargraves were under criticism in the past of what they do when they've got the dormant funds sitting in there. Presumably that goes out to uh, short-term money markets and the like. But in the past, um, their actual customers saw very little of this return. I think there was a change earlier on this year to that effect, Uh, but that was a result you know, primarily a result of uh, criticism. Mm-hmm.
1: I think, uh, as we should also say, you know, th- this has happened in the past and we don't know how widespread it is and uh, perhaps, you know, people, more people are going to be finding out uh, on the mm-hmm. back of uh, 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 this story. But I think the last time it was kind of really highlighted was, oh, and even then it was, you know, quite under the radar, it was early 2014. That was back after the, the retail distribution review and the sort of the change in pricing of that enacted. So that was at a time when, prices had changed and and maybe it's just coincidence that it's resurfacing now at a time when you know uh, pricing' under pressure again but we'll see you can uh, you can read more about that uh, online and in print and we will be covering uh, platforms a lot more as we as we continue to do this year uh, in the next few weeks the final thing I suppose we should say as well is that uh, the difficulty for all Platform customers still is the transferring process itself is pretty difficult. You know those transfer times are difficult, so that is plays to uh, incumbents. Um, there have definitely been improvements there, but I know that's still a big bugbear for a lot of people. So we'll see how all these things continue to interact. But on that note, that brings us to the end of a, a pack show. So thank you very much for uh, uh, listening. Thank you to our guests Dave, Alex, Julian, Mark, Jen, and John, and we will see you again next week for another. Other companies and market share.
5: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus.